Uh, Will Eaves is a novelist and a poet, um, and his most recent book, Murmur, was shortlisted for this year's Goldsmiths Prize, um, and he's a real gent. Will Eaves. <laughs> well, can you just, before we get to... Um, your writing about it. Could you just update me, all of us, specifically about Alan Turing and what happened to him? Right. Um, well, um, it will not astonish you to hear that I am not a logician and computer science pioneer, but Alan Turing was. Um, and I suppose what he's um, now best known for, um, which in some ways is a pity, are the last two um, very difficult years of his life. Um, having done this country a great service in the Second World War and helping to shorten the battle of the Atlantic um, by um, cracking the German naval enigma code. Um, not many years after that, um, he picked up um, a young man uh, in Manchester and um, they had an on-off relationship. The young man's name was Arnold Murray. Um, there was a break-in at Turing's house Turing, who was a hopeless liar, told the um, police some rather sort of shoddy story about um, how he'd come to some, some suspicion of who had broken into the house. The police turned out to be not very interested in the larceny, but they were very interested in the relationship he'd been having with the young man. And Turing was convicted of gross indecency with another male, which is the crime that Oscar Wilde uh, was arraigned and convicted of 70 years earlier. Um, the sentencing was unusual um, in that Turing was given a sort of Hobson's choice. Um, it was either go to jail and lose your career, that's the end of your academic life, um, scandal, publicity, um, shame and humiliation, or... Um, take a sort of industrial bromide, which has been characterised now as chemical castration, which is both isn't and both is and isn't right. Um, essentially, he was in, injected with lab-grade oestrogen. The process was called organotherapy. It lasted just over a year. Um, he grew uh, mammary deposits. Um, it was in a completely different, uh, interesting way extremely humiliating and painful. Um, he comes out of it, he bears the treatment with great fortitude. Um, his friends help him. Uh, and about 18 months after the end of it, I think, um, he takes his life, his own life. Um, the end of his life is, is, is slightly mysterious. Um, he ingested a poisoned apple. Um, the apple seemed to have been um, contaminated with potassium cyanide. Um, now, he had such chemicals knocking around in his house because he was a very, very good amateur chemist, and that was one of his kind of hobbies and sort of pleasures. Um, he was also a klutz. He was a very clumsy person. Um, so it is possible that the apple that he customarily um, ate before he went to bed every night because malic acid is a, is a, very, is a mild sedative, um, had rolled into a dish of you know, potassium cyanide. 
Um, so th that is a, po a possibility, although an unlikely one, an equally unlikely possibility, but, but a possibility, is that he was assassinated. Um, remember, this is the beginning of the uh, Cold War. The CIA in 1954 has just been formed. Um, Turing was at the top of the list of people with cryptanalyst secrets and cryptological know-how. Um, he must have seemed like a, a, a plausible target. Or someone who, being gay, being homosexual, was someone who might be blackmailed. Um, I'm sure the CIA were, were interested in him. But I think it's still very unlikely. Vastly, the overwhelming probability is he took his own life. And you've taken that story as a point from which to think about... Um, his experiences, but most particularly how someone who was a card-waving materialist yeah. who understood the world as matter, yeah. logically, um, then met this business of, of his Yeah, I think, I think that th th this, is a, this is a fundamental thing. That I, th it's my bet that... Um, Yes, he, so he, as, as a scientist, as a mathematician, he would have subscribed to the, you know, the, the condition and the premise of science and scientific method, which is that you strip out um, personal bias and, and the qualia of experience in order to get at a more fundamental description of the way things are. You know, that it's a world of forces and particles and laws and, you know, these are odourless and tasteless and, and you know, our proprioception and our feelings are things that we add to it. You have to take that away in order to get at the, the description of how things really are. Um, and indeed, the, the other thing that he's very well known for, it, it trades on exactly this, this idea that... Um, that, that, that there's something kind of soberly material about the world that you can, you can understand the presence of intelligence simply from behaviour. The Turing test, um, famously, the point of it is that, you know, you, you have a computer, you ask a human and you ask a computer the same questions, they're, they're blind questions. If you get a plausible response, a sufficiently plausible response from the computer, you can assign to that machine the presence of intelligence. Um, it doesn't really tell you, of course, uh, assigning intelligence to behaviours doesn't tell you what's going on inside. It doesn't actually prove the presence of an inner life. Um, similarly, in the root material description of the world, what's missing is what it's like to be a person. You know, what it's like, as Thomas Nagel famously said, you know, to have, um, to have a sensory experience, to have an emotion, to feel pain. And I think for a materialist to have this kind of humiliating regimen um, of treatment in which you suddenly sense you, you appear to be one thing to the world. You're still Alan Turing. You're still, um, you're still a person. You're still a physical person. But something very dramatic is going on to your body, yes, but also to your mind. I'm, my bet is he must have reappraised or, or certainly come to see that something was missing from his world picture. That the surface doesn't... That adequately infer. Yeah, doesn't adequately. Depth. Yeah, I mean, equally, <clears throat> of course, it's it's. There's a lot of kind of work in you know theory and philosophy of mind about this at the moment, and in AI about you know the, the notion of the zombie that you can have um, very very you, you can have a, a very plausibly behaving entity 
Um, but there's sort of nothing going on inside. It's just a sort of you know, very, very cleverly programmed device. Uh, equally, you can have something that doesn't appear to be doing anything, like a student who sits very, very quietly in the room and doesn't say anything, is sort of completely inert. But you know that something's going on inside. There is an inner life. So, <laughs> so or at least, you know, you're, you're kind enough to suggest in the middle of your seminar while it's going south. Um, so the two things are true. So in the, what you're almost trying to wonder about is where these two things meet almost, isn't it? Is where does consciousness arise out of inanimate yeah. stuff? Yeah. And where does matter become yes. conscious? Yes, what's the switch? Yeah. And, but, the, but what compels him to ask this question is the business of this terrible suffering. I think almost so. Almost as if he wouldn't have asked, or at least I think Alec so. Pryor, your fictionalised... Yeah. Um, version is prompted to this because of the distress he's experiencing. I think so, um, and I think isn't it is, isn't it isn't it true of, of, of our general experience that, that, that this tends to happen that the, the large scale um, existential and sometimes intellectual questions happen at moments of crisis, mm. where the you know the template that has served us well so far um, no longer serves us as well. What drew you to it as a story? Why were you drawn to it? Um, well, yes, it's an interesting one. I don't have a terribly good answer to that. Um, I, I'd lost my mother and I'd lost my partner. My partner had left me. So it wasn't one bereavement, one you know, end of a relationship. And, I, and I'd started doing a new job. I was suddenly an academic rather than a journalist. And... It, you know, when you change too many things at once, the result is often a <laughs> mild emotional chaos, actually, strike mild. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I found that um, I was beginning to look at things I'd really never looked at before, areas of inquiry that, that, that I was drawn to for reasons I didn't fully understand. I went to, to a conference about... Uh, a centenary conference in 2012 about Turing's work, and I, and I, I found it electrically fascinating. Um, a lot of it was beyond my competence and still is, but um, I stuck with it. Um, and I found myself writing something about technology, something about its alienating effects, um, something about its uh, pretensions to connectivity and the synthesis of community and the web, but the lonelinesses that underlie that and the unprovable nature of the connections that are supposed to be made in the virtual world. Right, sir. And when I looked at the, those unprovable things, I began to think about um, proofs and decidability, and I realised that Turing was a part of the story, and then I got interested in his biography. And it did speak to me, I confess, because I... Um, I, I suppose I was in quite a lot of pain myself, and I, the last thing I wanted to do was was really write about that myself because it, it was too live an experience. But the emotional was, pain, but as well as your physical, you mean your yeah, physical pain? physical pain, yeah. really. Yeah. The, the yeah. back pain. Back pain, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, in, interestingly, to the, without you know making that too um, glib, there was a parallel in in a sense in that you were experiencing distress and reconfiguring how you saw the world, and there was this character yeah. who very possibly was doing the same thing. Yeah, I, I, yes, I mean, I, I, the, the, the two things aren't, aren't comparable in scale, but I, but I felt I... Well, I, yes, I, I mean, I'm gay too, and um, I grew up, you know, in the, in the 
early to mid 80s and for those of you, many of you perhaps you remember the sort of television ads at the, the beginning of the AIDS pandemic and kind of sort of extraordinary advertisements of gravestones falling over um, and at the point at which you are learning something about your orientation and your 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 sexuality but but also the sort of that one's habit as a person, you're also being told <laughs> you're going to die. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, we all know we're going to die, but that did seem to me rather premature, the sort of, you know, <laughs> reminder of my mortality. Um, and so the result of that was that um, just as you learn something true about yourself, you also learn to hide. And so certain codes of behaviour are then instantiated which do not represent who you really are. And I was reminded of this very much when I came to Turing's story. Um, because I think there's something about, but maybe particularly growing up gay at that time, and certainly in the 50s too, in the 40s, where you appear to be one thing, you know you are something else. Um, which he must have been, at some level, however repressed, aware of all his life. Hmm. Might we have a reading yeah, from him? Yeah. Thank you. You, you can have... Um, you can have a. It's, so it's a book of. It's bookended by two um, fictional journals um, written by the Turing avatar, Alec Pryor. Uh, and then in between, there's a, a large section of um, dreams, uh, which are not reported, but which happen on the page. So they're written in a kind of sprung rhythm. And these dreams, we know that Turing did have um, rather strong hallucinations while he was on the drug. Uh, and they re revisit episodes in his life, and they are reconfections and reconfigurations of the past in the light of his present circumstances. So I'm going to read something that looks at, um, remembers the great love of his life. There's a boy at school called um, Christopher Morecambe, who for my purposes is called Christopher Molyneux. And this is an episode in which the two boys swim across the lake of their the minor public school, and they go, because public schools in the 20s and 30s, you know, terribly punitive places, no food. Um, they're going on a foraging expedition at night. And the sort of reflective narrator, who's, who's both the characters and something else, a sort of AI, um, gives you a flavor of what this expedition is like. They swim across the lake that forms a natural boundary to Wargrave School in search of food. They are the hunter-gatherers of a famished tribe, following a moonlit trail, suspended in a darkened element, wind-ruffled where the oxbow widens and the river terrace drops. Halfway between the boathouse and the other shore, Pryor pulls up, treads water, waits for Molyneux, who's making slow progress, breathing poorly, each stroke laboriously conceived. Pryor prefers to swim beneath the surface of the lake where he can go faster. He waits and hangs, expelling air so that he sinks. And while he sinks, opens his eyes to watch the water's relic luminosity vanish. Into the dark he falls and feels almost no resistance, his weight distributed. I'm not falling, he thinks. The earth rises. He has no force. The massive body of the lake bottom its feet of leaves and grit, the old floodplain, bedrock, downfold and crust, the whole planet rushes to greet his cold body. He has the feeling that he's staring back in time or at another part of time. And as he stares, 
The white blown carcass of a moon-like fish, a tench, stares back from the reed bed, its ripped flesh waving in a dense current. On the far side of Deauville Lake, the Deauvilles, Ceylonese tea giants, built their summer house, and round it in a fertile acre planted an orchard, apples, plums, damsons and mirabelles, raspberry canes. It stretches down to shiny pebbles and a gravel bed, in whose unkind embrace the two boys lie, shocked by exposure, both shaking. Molyneux shakes a little less. His breath comes, when it comes at all, in whistles. He is curled up like a louse. On his blue chest, a salvage team hammers for scrap, battering lungs and heart. Alec. The other boy makes no reply, but picks his friend up and hauls him through dusty canes towards the summer house, a pavilion with rattan chairs, a daybed, blankets in a pile. The French windows are locked. The waning gibbous moon behind Pryor is bright, and I can see his desperation at the pain, the pain that houses me. He shades his eyes to see inside. The body of Chris Molyneux has one arm about Pryor's neck, one foot dragging, the other twisting free. Panic distracts. It does not concentrate the mind. And while he casts about for stones, Pryor scents warlike omens in the air. A cat, loping along the blue shoreline, stops to observe the scene. A field mouse trails from its mouth. There are others among the trees. The secret population of the night, avid for death. And Pryor, unwilling to drop his friend, afraid to break the glass. What if he cuts his hand and faints? Who will help them then? Molyneux's hanging arm swings once and points. A silver hint from underneath the grey stock brick. Pryor lays down the painful weight. Molyneux twitches, tries to cough, and takes the key and thrusts it in the lock. Something has warped, worked loose. Molyneux is lying at his feet in the spring mulch, Leaves glossy dark as patent leather shoes, his body thin and starved but smooth, like some young chief not yet committed to his passage grave, waiting for earth and chalk to wrap him round. Inside the pavilion, above the daybed, glows a deer skull. Pryor shivers. He didn't see it there before, although it's bright as Sirius in Canis Major, Procyon or Capella. And by an optical effect, the angle of the moon, his own reflection peers out from the animal's long head, which grunts and stares. The animal he has become inspires him to charge. He butts the door. It falls open, a clatter of springs and uncorked wood. A lightning crack divides my pain, and I see everything faulted and thrown. Thank you. So the I, the narrator there, <clears throat> is Alex's consciousness. Yeah. Viewing the... I mean, his, his consciousness viewing the body of him, almost. Yeah, yeah. And within this book, Alex's tussle, such as it is, and I think, therefore, yours, comes across as trying to reconcile the whole business of seeing the matter and wondering, therefore if consciousness is arising just from matter, yeah. 
what do the what do things mean finally? He's trying to work out meaning, isn't he? Yes, I think he is. I think he's trying to he's trying to work out the point at which it arises. Um, and he's also yes, and he's also trying to be wrestling with the sort of impossibility of an objective viewpoint. Uh, there's two things that occur to me just just saying that, which I hadn't sort of thought I would say, but there's there's something Nabokov says very beautifully. Um, in one of his um, remarkable lectures, which is that um, consciousness is a space helmet. Um, you know, it's our support system, it, but, and it's all we have. And outside the space helmet is death. Uh, you can't be outside the space helmet. Um, so you can't have an exterior view of it. This is a huge problem for the scientific reduction of <laughs> mind. Um, and one we haven't yet cracked. Uh, and the other thing is the, the tussling with you know, meaning um, has to do with points at which you measure change in your life and points at which you measure, as you said earlier, coming to consciousness and coming out of it. And as I'm sure you know, if you speak to an anaesthetician, um, they'll say, well, we know when someone's under and we know when someone's awake and we know what we can give to effect the change. But actually, the point at which the one becomes point. the other is extremely difficult to remark. And it's, it's my bet, and I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a layperson, sort of, I, I did a lot of thinking about this book, but I am clearly not a mathematician or a philosopher. It's my bet that really the story of consciousness is, is one of tessellation. In other words, there are states that interlock so closely that they can't be obviously divided. And moreover, that when you change from the, uh, the inorganic to the anic or from the unconscious to the conscious, um, the process takes you in a direction that renders the origin irretrievable in the process of reduction. So that, um, I mean, my, yeah, the tessellation is my way of thinking. But e Escher's prints are a bit like this, you know, and you see M.C. Escher's wonderful prints where transformations go on. You start with white doves and then you end up with black doves and they're, they're flying across the sky. But they change so gradually in such interesting ways that you can't, there's no sort of symmetry, there's no point of fracture. But that seems to be where Alec arrives at the sense of meaning, is that things, all right, they may be entirely material, but there's a permeability and a continuity across different states and indeed across individuals. Yeah. And he seems to arrive at, therefore, the sense that if that is the case, if there is this continuity and permeability, then therefore, inescapably, there's responsibility to yes. others. Yes, I think, that, I think that's true. Um, I think it was very important to me that, that I didn't... Uh, one of the things that few people, <laughs> few people who've read it, <laughs> um, said to me was, you know, aren't you angrier on, on Alex or, or Turing's behalf? And um, I, I'm not, firstly because I'm not surprised by what happened. I think the, the awful, pitiful truth about life is that ordinary good people do terrible things when they are given plausible license so to do by institutions and authorities they respect. That's what happens, we see it around us all the time, we see it now. And it happens very easily and it's rather alarming. Now understanding that means therefore that one can have compassion for one's um, assailants and torturers. 
is difficult, it's hard, it involves um, encountering enormous amounts of anger and frustration which never really go away, but they can be transformed. And the, the, the understanding that, that, that people are part of a political and social as well as physical and a mental process that uh, insidiously changes them enforces some kind of compassionate stance, I think, I think if you're at all interested in other people, because you can sort of, you can see how that might happen to you. It's interesting, so I just wonder if there's a little bit of uncertainty here, because <clears throat> almost the, the sense was, well, look, empathy is untenable mm. because the surface doesn't infer the depth, you, and therefore we're impossibly separated. Yeah. Yet, at the same time, I don't think you really think that, because you've empathise with this character, your other book, The Absent Therapist, occupies hundreds of different sensibilities. So how do you... There's, there's a continuity that you can infer as shared consciousness and humanity, but we're also opaque to one another. Yeah, I think it, actually Schrodinger has an interesting... I mean, I'm, I'm slightly taking refuge in him, and I will answer that more personally in a moment, but I think that uh, Schrodinger says that... Um, this has been taken up by other people, but interestingly, it's not sufficiently attributed to him. In his lectures on mind and matter, he's, he, he was the first person to say that consciousness might be something aspectual, that actually it's one thing, like a field or a force, a singulare tantum, but we each as individuals have aspectual views of it, ways into it, much as you might look at a mountain and have different names for it if you live on different sides of the, of, of the hill. Um, so that's his kind of view of what you know, uh, uh, the mental condition, what consciousness is. Um, uh, and I find, that, I find that very appealing as, as an idea. The business about empathy and sympathy is, is, is related but different insofar as I think that you get very, very close to understanding other people. And you get close to understanding their inner lives, both as a consequence of the things they do, their behaviours, and because of things that are sort of relevant about them to you, um, not least their, you know, the, the way they look. Uh, this is why it's a bit more, you know, it's a bit more difficult to sort of empathise with, with a spider, although I love spiders, um, because it's not, it doesn't seem to, have, it seems to be so alien. It's sort of eight legs and... Mm. Um, uh, <laughs> You know, it's, it's quite difficult, which is why we have to anthropomorphise these things in order kind of to sort of build a story about them. Charlotte's Web, you know, the cure for arachnophobia, by the way, to read Charlotte's Web. I think the, the point about the absent therapist and all those voices is that I think sympathy is about getting very close to people but not quite being there. And it's the not quite that's mm. exquisite and painful and beautiful in relationships. <laughs> and it's the not quite that's really, really important because you have to remember that you don't know other people. If I think an awful lot of damage is done by the idea that there's sort of perfect understanding mm. to be had somewhere. Mm. And terrible damage is done to relationships on that score. And then, of course, people turn around and say, I feel as if I don't know you, to which the answer is, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and you wonder why I'm single. <laughs> Not after this session. There's going to be a queue out there. Well, just... In the book, one thing I do want to ask you about, um, importantly, is that the, he, 
Alex starts by stating that fear of homosexuality is never far from the surface, um, which is something that he goes on to, to talk about why he thinks that might... Um, actually, would you mind just reading that read opening that paragraph? Yeah. <laughs> Partly to remind, <laughs> remind me what I wrote. Um, it's the thing about books, they move away from you once they're finished. Um, <clears throat> fear of homosexuals is never far from the surface. The few people who have supported me after my conviction must be very strong-minded. I do not think most people are equipped to associate with pariahs. They have a shadowy sense of how frail they themselves would be in the face of institutional opposition and stigmatization, how utterly cast down if they lost their jobs, if people they knew stopped serving them in shops or looked past them in the street. It is not hatred that turns the majority against the minority, but intuitive shame. That's phenomenally powerful piece of writing. Um, <laughs> is, there st I mean, is there still truth in that assertion in 2018? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Scratch the surface. Yeah. And you'll find that a lot of um, what we, you know, proudly and rightly embrace as, you know, liberal advances in loosely human rights, really, um, not usually strongly, human rights, uh, would fall away uh, if the circumstances were right. And this is the, I think this is the main point, that um, those advances uh, in gay rights, um, in um, all, all sorts of sort of you know, parities and equalities in, in, in law, um, women's rights, um, a, a, an enlightened... Um, enlightened developmental policy abroad, which has more or less disappeared, of course. Uh, they are all predicated upon um, a, a mean level of social and economic stability. Take that away, and they disappear, as mist in the morning sun. And I'm afraid, not wanting to be too, too miserable about it, that's what we're facing. That's all we have time for. We leaves. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.